was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. That's how Charles Dickens began his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, in 1859. Charles Dickens wrote those words in 1859 about events that actually happened in the 1790s. And I think his words still ring true. We live at a time that is still all of those things Dickens wrote about. There's enormous possibility for good and tremendous evil. We have an opportunity to make great inroads for the kingdom of God. But churches all over the country have fumbled the ball. And those are the thoughts that I want you to have in mind as we look at the passage today. We're going to be reading from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We've been talking about the Jesus way since Easter, and we will for another month. And then we're going to talk about Jesus some more. I hope you're not bored with the topic. Because in this time that is the best of times and the worst of times, we want to know Jesus deeply, to be transformed by him completely, and reflect his love and grace accurately to a world that is deeply conflicted. In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and really starting with Angela's sermon a couple of weeks ago, it looks like we've got a bunch of unconnected sayings of Jesus, like maybe Jesus is seeing he's losing the crowd, but there's some stuff that he wants to make sure he gets in. But it's a mistake to think that, because everything in the sermon is following a progression. And our key understanding, the thing that makes sense of everything that Jesus has said here, is that he's creating a new community and talking about what that community looks like and how it's different from the rest of the culture. That's the only way to make sense of some of the otherwise crazy sounding things that he says. So Angela and Jonathan tackled a couple of the subjects that come right before this passage. Let's see how they tie together. In the kingdom of God, the community that Jesus is creating, we don't have to worry. Jesus reveals to us a God who will take care of us, a God that we can trust is on our side, a God who understands the pressures and the challenges and anxiety-producing events of our lives and proves himself faithful in the midst of all that. We're also in a community with a bunch of other people. That's kind of the definition of community. It's clear throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, that this whole Jesus thing is about building a community of people. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus and the people he has placed you with for your mutual growth. In that community, we don't have to control other people. We don't need to judge other people. Lots of times we judge to control or to make ourselves look better. We don't have to do that. We don't have to worry about making ourselves look better or superior to others. Our worth doesn't depend on that. I loved Jonathan's point about how by the grace of God, we can have the plank removed from our eyes and that allows us to see clearly so that we can look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eyes 
with nothing but grace and compassion. Instead of looking in judgment, we can say, hey, I've been there. I've experienced the grace of God. I want you to have that too. But you protest, we have to preserve the purity of the church. What happens if we let sinners in? Well, that ship already sailed. We want sinners because Jesus came to save sinners and to bring them new life. Our job is to get them to Jesus, who is the healer, not to judge them. We get to come alongside hurting and broken people and come to God together. We get to show people the source of grace and healing. I like the question that I think Tim Mackey asked. What does it take to sustain this kind of life and practice? And that's what this section we're looking at this morning is going to deal with. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus is talking about having a relationship to God, the type of relationship that God wants to have with us and that what the, then what the implications are. We can do a lot with this, so let's look at a couple of options. These can be directions about prayer. Prayer is foundational to the life of people who are following Jesus. And prayer isn't as mysterious as it sounds. It's not really all that hard. Prayer is making a connection to God. It's talking to God. So ask, what do you need? Ask God for it. Seek. That's taking some initiative. Maybe more serious prayer. I'm seeking direction. I'm looking for an answer. I'm focused on this thing. Knock. Maybe that's persistence. I'm not giving up. This is something that we're invited to do. Jesus talks about this a lot. Be persistent in your prayers. Go ahead and bug God. So this could be a pattern for prayer. Ask, seek, knock. Another way to look at this is ask, that's prayer again, faith and trusting in God for what we need. And in asking, I want to offer you a pattern. We've talked about that. I love the quote, pray as you can, not as you can't. I was reading something by Tim Keller the other day, and he was talking about Thomas Cranmer, who really wrote most of the Book of Common Prayer, and in it there's a series of collects. It's, it's spelled like collect, but it's pronounced collects. And Cranmer has a pattern that he uses that I thought was helpful and might be helpful to you, so I offer it. One is the address. You start with the name of God. Two is the doctrine. A truth about God's nature that's the basis for the prayer. Three is the petition, what's being asked for. Four, the aspiration, what good, will, what good result will come if the request is granted. And then five, in Jesus' name. Uh, that remembers the mediatorial role of Jesus. So Cranmer's collect for the service of Holy Communion goes like this. The address, Almighty God, the doctrine, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. The petition, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. The aspiration, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, what might I pray? Loving God, you never leave me or abandon me. Help me to sense your peace as I grow, go through this stressful meeting so that I can be a witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. And maybe that pattern will be helpful to you. Seek, then, is about orientation. 
I'm seeking the kingdom as opposed to seeking fame, fortune, or what have you. Knock is at the door of relationship. And I think about the context of Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in. So I'm actively connecting with God, living into the kingdom, and developing a relationship with God. And I think this makes sense of the next passage. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So ask and you'll receive an answer. The one who seeks finds. That's a promise from Jesus that was an Angelus sermon. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 33. Knock and the door is open. So God interacts with us. If you ask for something, you get an answer. If you seek, you'll find everything you need. If you knock on God's door, he'll open it. What Jesus is illustrating is that God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to know him. He wants to be involved in our lives. And then Jesus adds, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? The first reaction to this shouldn't be, well, some people do terrible things to their children. They would give them a stone instead of bread or a snake instead of a fish. Yes, that is tragically true. Some people do terrible things to their children, but most people don't. By and large, most people take care of their children. Most people give their children what they need. So let's go with what Jesus' intent here is and not look for the exception to the general rule. The context is a parent-child relationship. If you have a kid or you're in charge of a kid and the kid needs something, you give them what they need. Kids need lots of things. They need to ask for lots of things because they need help. They can't reach stuff. They can't make stuff. They don't have the dexterity or maybe the knowledge of how to do things. So you make the breakfast or you change the diaper or you arrange the play date or you push the swing. And at your best, you're happy to do those things. There can be moments when you're not at your best. I won't name any names, but I've heard a number of people say, if I hear the word mommy again, I'm going to scream. But this is a judgment-free zone, Jonathan said so. We give our kids what they need. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is another parental image passage. The Bible uses family images to help explain how we relate to God. God is a father to us. Now, like I said a few weeks ago, that can be a troubling image or a painful image for some people. What we need to picture here, though, is the ideal father. Everything a father is supposed to be. Everything that maybe your father wasn't or couldn't be. That's how God wants to relate to you. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, if you, with all of your issues and baggage, can see your way through to being a good parent, imagine what a good parent God is or wants to be. God is a good father and he wants to give us good gifts. So, ask for what you need. The father who loves you will give you what you need. And that's one of the things about prayer. You always receive an answer. It's not always yes but you get an answer. It might be yes, it might be no, it might be wait, or something else. 
Lots of times when we feel like God isn't answering our prayers, it's not because God isn't answering our prayers, it's because he's not answering the way we want him to. You can ask. It doesn't mean that he will always give it to you. That would actually be irresponsible parenting. And that's more of a Santa Claus kind of thing than a God is a good father kind of thing. We can't always see that there could be negative consequences to what we might ask for. I'm still being a good parent when I say no. Sometimes I'm a better parent if I say no. I can't believe that I'm the only person who had really strong opinions about how children should be raised until I actually had kids. There's some proud parenting moments, and then there are those times where you're like, I just want to take a shower. And if that means I have to put my kid in front of a screen with a popsicle, that's what's going to happen. Can I get an amen? So I'll tell you a story about Allie and her juice glass. Allie was the second child, so we weren't as um, hypervigilant. Those of you who have like four kids, man, that last kid must have raised themselves. So neither of our kids were great sleepers, and we tried everything. Allie would go to sleep if we let her have her sippy cup with juice. No sippy cup, no sleepy. So we caved. And one day, we're sitting at dinner, and Rachel, her older sister, says, Have you seen that Allie has a hole in her teeth? I'm like, what? Oh, and not just one. There were lots. She wanted juice. She didn't know there might be negative consequences. We knew there might be, but we were so tired. We caved and said yes, and she got cavities. I wish I'd said no. And prayer is like that. Sometimes God says no. I think of Jesus asking in the Garden of Gethsemane, and God says no. But it didn't stop him from asking. And that brings up another point. Why pray if God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do? I think it's because God is calling us into partnership. God wants to work through us, and prayer is an opportunity to participate in the plan of God. As we pray, sometimes God drops thoughts, ideas, and plans into our minds, and we get to be a part of that. God wants to partner with you in bringing the life of the kingdom into the world. But God's will actually gets thwarted all the time. He seeks to work through people who either say no or who are too preoccupied to hear what he was saying to them, and then God has to find someone else. Thankfully, with Jesus, he didn't have to find someone else, and hopefully he doesn't have to find someone else with you either. So for Jesus, prayer is a relationship activity. He's just sharing with God where he is. And then Jesus makes this bold offer to us, pray for what you want. Jesus had this trust relationship, and he invites us to have that relationship with the God also. And then the last line of the passage. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So is actually therefore. And one of the chief rules of biblical interpretation is when you see the word therefore, you have to stop and ask, what is it therefore? Jesus is saying, because of everything I just said, now do this. He's talked about not worrying because God will take care of you. He's talked about not judging. That's not our job. Our job is to point people to the giver of grace. He's talked about this God who wants to be in relationship with you. 
So because of all that, we're free to love other people. Love God, love other people. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to do. What does loving people look like? Well, how do you want people to love you? Do that. We're entering into a challenging season for our country. As you write your social media posts, as you have coffee and talk with and about other people, will you be doing to other people what you wish they would do to you? Are you loving people in the same way that God loves you? Are you extending grace to people since so much grace has been extended to you? There are two things that I really think we need to address as followers of Jesus. We need to give up hate and anger. My maxim is don't hate anyone ever. But I want to take some time to be explicit here. Don't hate people who believe Black Lives Matter. Don't hate the Proud Boys. Don't hate the media, conservative or liberal. Don't hate people who are trying to enter the country legally or illegally. Don't hate poor people. Don't hate billionaires. Don't hate Supreme Court justices. Don't hate Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Don't hate Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer. Don't hate Kevin McCarthy or Hakeem Jeffries. Don't hate the governor. Don't hate Southern Baptists. Don't hate United Methodists. Don't hate people on the opposite end of any debate about politics or social issues. Paul Pelosi was attacked in his home by a man who hated Nancy Pelosi, and people made fun of it. Don't be filled with hatred like that. Mitch McConnell had some sort of medical issue at a press conference this week, and some people were hoping that he was going to, going to die. Don't be filled with hatred like that. Don't hate Arabs. Don't hate Jews. Don't hate Hispanics. Don't hate so-called white trash or rednecks. And I could go on. Don't hate anyone ever. And deal with your anger issues. Getting angry never helps. Only Jesus can be trusted with anger. If you're angry, that says more about what is in you than what is out there. Instead of hatred or anger, Jesus gives us a better option. Instead of getting angry or hating, we can have compassion. We can have compassion for people who are hurting. We can have compassion for people who make bad choices. We can have compassion for people who are working from a psychological or emotional deficit. We can have compassion for people whose life situation is very different from ours. We can have compassion for people who don't know the love and grace of Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, I don't have that much capacity for compassion. I can't care about everything. No, no you can't. But if you have time to form an opinion about something, you have time to pray about it. And perhaps prayer will open up an opportunity to show compassion. It's also about a life posture. My predisposition will not be to hate or to become angry. My predisposition will be to seek to care for and love others the way that I wish they would care for and love me. And some days I'll do better than others. But that's the posture I will start with. People are still spiritual. People are still seeking to be loved and to know grace. People are still seeking community. But people are so disillusioned with the church. When I was down in Santa Barbara last week, I got together with two of my longest time friends. 
One I've known since second grade, the other since we were 11. Both people of faith. One had been in a part-time ministry for almost 20 years. As we talked about some spiritual stuff, they both said, me and Jesus are fine, but I will never go back to church again. And they gave some reasons that I think would be pretty common. I hear about them a lot from individuals and from reading what's out there. But they both said, if we lived in Gig Harbor, we would go to Harbor Covenant. I don't say that because we're awesome, but as a caution for us. Let's keep being that type of community that people see the love and grace of Jesus in. Let's keep getting better at being that type of community. And let's never forget that we only have to take our eyes off the goal once or twice, and we can lose all of it. So let me ask you three questions. How would you characterize the state of your relationship with God? Number two, what others do you need to do to differently this week? And number three, how might God be calling you into partnership with Him? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.